Welcome, everybody. I'm Joe Tarnowski, and today we're going to talk about getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. My guest is Sterling Hawkins, who is an entrepreneur, speaker, and the author of Hunting Discomfort, How to Get Breakthrough Results in Life and Business No Matter What. So now Sterling and I go back probably more than 20 years. Uh, he was practically born into retail and technology. And uh, we're going to discuss some of the concepts that he explores in the book, which comes out next month, by the way. So, Sterling, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, to kick things off, you give us a little background on yourself and why you wrote the book. Yeah. Sure. Well, first, it's so good to join you. We were just talking before we, we started recording here how long it's been since we've had a chance to catch up. But you really are like my oldest business friend. And to connect with you like this is just awesome. Um, and the bonus is we both get to be wearing black t-shirts while we exactly. do this, right? <laughs> Except I need one of your shirts. Now. Yeah, I got I still have to send you one. But here's, here's the thing. I think most people get into speaking and writing because they've done something hugely notable. You know, they've taken a company public at some astronomical valuation or they've climbed Mount Everest on their hands and knees. Um, or maybe they won an Olympic gold medal despite overwhelming odds. And I know a lot of those people and they're fantastic. I got into this stuff for none of those reasons. In fact, almost the opposite. You're early on in my career, you know, I grew up in my family's retail store in central New York and started a software company with my dad. And you know, the long story short is we sold it to a group in Silicon Valley, raised a ton of money, multi-billion dollar valuation. And when the housing market collapsed, our investment dried up. And well, that was the beginning of my hunting discomfort journey. Not a fun position to be in. It, it was not. It, you know, I say to Jess, like it's kind of playing out a, a bad country song. You know, I run out of cash. I don't have a job anymore. Eventually, I move in with my parents because, you know, I, I just could not figure out what had happened in my life. And my identity was caught up in the whole company bankruptcy. And it got so bad, my girlfriend broke up with me. Like it really was. I was hitting every single beat of this country song. And it really was some dark times for many months, and the case could even be made for many years. Took uh, how long did it take to climb out? And and uh, these, I'm guessing, a lot of the lessons you learned along the way, digging out of there, went into the book. Exactly. Yeah. You know, the the first night I'm at my parents' house, I I will never ever forget. You know, I moved in with my couple suitcases. I've got some boxes in the corner in the spare bedroom that they've got. Um, and it wasn't even the house I grew up in. Like they had since moved. So I was in their legitimate guest bedroom. <laughs> and I'm staring at that ceiling the first night. I'm in six figures of personal debt. And uh, I'm in a place where I don't know if I can or even if I want to go on. <laughs> and, you know, through some deep soul searching that night, I said, you know what? I'm going to take this, this failure. I'm going to take this position that I'm in. I'm going to take this you know, unknown that I've been cast into. And I'm going to come back and I'm going to do something. I don't know what yet, but I'm going to do something with my life, no matter what. And uh, that was really the beginning of starting to build myself back. So what's interesting is, you know, you, you in a, initially had discomfort thrown at you. You were hurled. Exactly. Into it. Now you pursue it on purpose. Yeah. Well, so what I learned, so in those dark times, one of the things that scared me most, we all have things that scare us, right? For me at the time, believe it or not, it was public speaking. 
because of the failure, because of my identity was so wrapped up in it, I was terrified to even be in a conversation like this, not to mention be on a stage in front of any number of people. And my mom said this thing when I was a kid. She said a lot of things, but the thing that stood out to me at this point was uh, the Robert Frost quote, the way out is through. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know what? If the way out is through and the thing I'm most scared of doing is speaking in public, I'm going to do that. Mm-hmm. Let's, like, let's test this theory out. And I got a, a, a random email from a conference in Singapore. It's just junk mail inviting me to a conference. And I hit the reply button on that email. And I said, why don't you have me speak? Best Sterling. Not thinking anything about it. I was like, okay, the way out's through. Maybe I should speak. I'm going to send this email. Well, I don't know if the stars align, Joe. Or, you know, the heavens opened up or something greater than me was like the way out is through because the conference director gets back to me and says, uh, you know, through a couple of conversations, invites me to be the keynote speaker of their conference. (laughs) Insane, right? You know why? Why he did it? What was his rationale for doing that? Yeah, well, I, I had told him about my experience, mm-hmm. and I what I wanted to talk about on the stage was some of the mistakes that we had made, okay, uh, and kind of outing some of the dirty laundry. And he's like, "Yeah, absolutely." Uh, and at this point, he sends me the contract. They're going to fly me first class to Singapore. I'm signing the contract, thinking, "What are you doing, Sterling? Like, you have no right to be signing this contract to be on their stage." And so I spent the next probably three months preparing for that thing, which I, don't, I know they say like when you prepare, you're less nervous. That didn't work for me. Mm-hmm. I was terrified. Um, but eventually I, I did get up on the stage. I did give the talk. It's a good thing I practiced because I think I blacked out during it. But I get off the stage and the conference director, I think I've like totally bombed. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of like covering my eyes thinking, hey, maybe you won't see me. I can just duck out of here. He makes a beeline for me and goes, Sterling, that's the greatest talk I've seen in my 17 years of doing this. To this day, I don't think he was actually in the keynote that I gave. (laughs) But he did go on to put me in touch with all of uh, his conference director friends. And all of a sudden, I had the speaking career. And I was like, well, wait a minute. If the way out is through anything that I'm fearful of, scared of, that I've triggered by in any way... There must be breakthroughs there as well. And so you're right. Now, I look for discomfort, physical, mental, emotional, even spiritual in different ways. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's something I could definitely relate to. I'm a big fan of doing that myself. <clears throat> I, I think I, know you are. I think that's part of the reason we're friends. <laughs> well, the best way to, to you know, eliminate that fear is to, to just face it. And <clears throat> on the other end of it, you're like, well, you know what? It really wasn't that bad. And you know what? Yeah. Even if you try something and you fail, when you look back at it, you realize the failure and the ramifications of it were really not as bad as you make them out to be in your head. Totally. And I think the more times you do that, you build a, a courage, maybe better said, a belief in yourself mm-hmm. that you can handle those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I see a lot of people like trying to hack confidence on Instagram or Facebook and, you know, tried and true is building courage. I don't know if there's a hack that actually works any sustainable way out there. 
It really is from the ground up, building a belief in yourself that no matter what happens, you're the kind of person that can deal with it. It's interesting because you mentioned the Robert Frost poem and, you know, uh, it's, it's through the way out is through. through. Well, there's a, I, there's a podcast I listened to, uh, Andrew Huberman. He's a neuroscientist. I love that guy. So, and he talks about that when it, as it relates to dopamine and fear and pushing past, uh, anxiety where Mm -hmm. physically, if you lean forward of your center of mass, Mm. it activates the dopamine and helps you push through fear there's okay. something neurological in that that just account you know something about forward movement in the face of adversity that reduces the amount of fear in the amygdala yeah so i can't explain the the he he got really technical when he talked about exactly what it was that did that but it just aligns with that saying in that poem <laughs> well and it's it's a biohack for getting better smarter and faster i was just looking at some research out of yale that said when you're uncomfortable you learn up to four times faster yeah like four times like i i don't know how in universities when they're lecturing they don't figure out how to make all the students uncomfortable right because we all turn into uh super beings when mm-hmm. we're a little bit uncomfortable not too uncomfortable but just enough to kind of get us on that edge where yep. we're most effective enough to get the adrenaline flowing because exactly uh, or the <clears throat> dopamine as andrew yeah. would say going back to to huberman he also addressed that study yeah uh, where he talked about good one, one way to do it is uh doing that wim hof breathing yep before you start whatever it is you're going to do that you need the focus and concentration to do yeah. that wim hof breathing or do a cold plunge or something that just gets that spurt of adrenaline yeah and then you get the focus yeah. You know, what's really interesting, Joe, is when I started this hunting discomfort journey, I started doing some research in the early days. I've done a ton of research going into the book, especially, but I found this research out of uh, University of Michigan, and they were doing these brain scans on people to assess how they were processing physiologically discomfort, whether it was emotional discomfort or physical discomfort. And sure enough, they found that in those brain scans, how humans process any kind of discomfort is almost identical, like exactly the same from a brain standpoint. It doesn't know if you've just been broken up with, or if you broke your leg to the point that you could take aspirin and feel better if you've got an emotional trauma going on. Mm. And I, I looked at that. I was like, no way. Where we meet discomfort anywhere builds our capacity to deal with it everywhere. It's a muscle that we can build. And so, you know, whether you're seeking discomfort emotionally, physically, anywhere in your life, it gives you better capacities to handle it everywhere. And I love the Wim Hof stuff, by the way. I've I've been taking cold showers, not a full cold shower, but like 60 seconds right at the end for, I don't know, maybe coming up on two years now. Yeah, same here. Same here. And yeah. you know what? It's not too, it makes the winters a little bit easier to endure. <coughs> well, in New York anyway, where are you these days? Are you still in California? I'm in Denver or? and I still, I will still complain about the cold out here. I was in Southern California for over a decade. And so I think I'm still adjusting. Mm-hmm. I prefer like finding the cold versus just being subjected to it all the time. Yeah. No, nah, I don't, I don't mind the cold as much, but then again, I'm New York my whole, my whole life. So, uh, yeah. Well, you're <clears> out there with like a rucksack and hiking 30 miles in the snow with <laughs> 50 pounds on your back, aren't you? 
Yeah, not 30 miles, but uh, in the snow, six inches of snow uh, um, when we had the last snowstorm, I think back in uh, December or January. So, uh, you know, I just enjoy that. So, um, so you know, before we get into the conversation of hunting yeah. discomfort, mm-hmm. let's talk a little bit about how avoiding discomfort holds us back. Because a lot of people don't like feeling uncomfortable. Right. Yeah, they they don't. I mean... I think it's just built into us that when we experience discomfort, that's a warning sign that we should leave. Mm-hmm. And from a survival standpoint, that's correct. Like your discomfort is built into you as a survival mechanism to keep you safe. The problem is, is that mechanism is misaligned and isn't always attributing the right discomfort to the right danger. So uh, I'll explain what I mean. A couple of years ago, I went skydiving for, uh, well, you know, my sister Havilland for her birthday. And she's like, you're the no matter what guy, Sterling, you have to come. And so, you know, she twisted my arm. We get over there and we get up in the plane. And have you been skydiving before? I've never done skydiving. You know, you have to sign like 30 release forms that all say you're not doing it um, by somebody pressuring you into it. And if you die, it's not their fault. And I'm not exaggerating. Like there are form after form after form. And then you get in this plane, you start taking off and it's all rickety. And I'm thinking this is insane. Like this is one of the stupider things that I have ever done. And they have you back out of the plane. I jumped with somebody, obviously they're they're not letting me do it. Right. But they have us go out backwards so I don't have to look at it because they say if people look before they jump, they don't want to jump. Terrified, like through every piece of my body. When I jumped, it was phenomenal, but I was doing a little research afterwards and I found out that the likelihood of dying from skydiving is less than the chances of me driving to the skydiving place, getting stung by a bee or having some other, you know, like struck by lightning, uh, act of God phenomenon combined. And yet I am much more terrified to jump out of the plane than I am to drive to the skydiving place. Yeah. It's that perception. Exactly. Right. So as we move into discomfort, it starts to better align our internal maps, our internal mechanism with what actually is dangerous versus what maybe our past has told us is dangerous, which is not always correct. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, you bring up something in your book, which I think made a lot of sense. Something yeah. where you compare it to physics, right? It's like what can, what yeah. actual, what is actually true as per physics and and the laws of nature, and then what is just you're thinking about in your mind, and usually what's in your mind is a little off <laughs> compared yeah, to that. I, well, I I think that's why me and so many people have been afraid to speak in public because it can be very scary. I I would call it uh, a fear of exposure in the book, right? Like people maybe aren't going to accept you or like you or support you. You're going to be ostracized in some way. Um, But the physics of the situation, there's no danger. Mm -hmm. You're just standing in a room with some other people also standing in a room. And so as we go into that discomfort, it can unlock new opportunities. And if we don't, by the way, it kind of locks us in the jail cell of the results that we already have. If you're happy with them, no problem. But if you want new results, you need to go in that discomfort to get them. Yep. And, you know, that that uh, uh, good segue into the next thing I wanted to talk about was the limiting beliefs. I mean, 
I think a lot yeah. a lot of people are they get into a rut because they have uh, limiting beliefs. They're afraid of trying something new, being wrong, yeah. and I think that that's a big part of what's holding people back. Totally. So the biggest changes in personal results and also cultural or business results do not come from doing things. They come from changing fundamental beliefs, changing our view of the world. And I always like to equate beliefs to lenses, like lenses and glasses. Mm -hmm. You know, the first thing is just like my glasses, if I put them on, I see better. You put them on, you see worse. Beliefs change what and how we see something. Very powerful. We kind of know that already. The second piece is more interesting, though, is I'm not oftentimes taking my glasses off and examining the lenses. And I don't know hardly anybody that does that with their beliefs that sits down on a regular basis and says, hey, what do I really believe about myself? What do I really believe about these other people or the person? Or what do I believe about the world? And are those beliefs continuing to serve me? You know, they got you to where they are, but likely they're not going to take you to the next level. And people are afraid to change. Sometimes they just stuck into that. This is the way we've always done it. And then it prevents them yeah. from looking at something in a new way, uh, a way that can be better. You know, and a great example is what we went through when the pandemic hit, right? We yeah, were exactly for 25 years. We were based on in-person uh, get programs where people got together physically and they met. And yeah. then when the pandemic hit, it was like we had to reinvent not only the whole business, but basically the way buyers and brands got together. And then yeah. fast forward to now where in-person events out there are starting up again, but our buyers still want to do virtual. We have twice as many buyers <clears throat> participating in our sessions now than we did before. And I've done... Wow. Yeah, and I more than in person. Yeah, and I've done you know one of the things that it was a don't get me wrong I love in person I miss the people yeah. I don't miss the travel. Yeah, but I've been able to accomplish so much more content wise because now everything is done like this, and I'm able to produce so much more because I don't have the travel I don't have to find them. I've been doing these articles where. I interview about a dozen buyers per article. Wow. And, you know, I just set up the meetings during one of our sessions and I have 20 minute interviews with a dozen buyers. Yeah. When I was an editor at a trade magazine, I would have killed to have that kind of access. And now I do. And one of the questions I asked them is, you know, what do they think the future of virtual is going to be now that yeah. we're getting out of the pandemic? <clears throat> and to almost to a person, I'd say 99%. They say virtual is going to be their preferred method yeah. for meetings with new vendors, first meetings with new vendors. That's yeah. going to be how they vet them. And they're going to save the in-person. In-person's not going to go away, but it's going to be saved for once they're conducting business with them and for more complex conversations. Because on both sides, <clears throat> on the buyer side, time. Time yeah. is, and you were, you know, you guys ran a grocery store. 
time is the one thing that you guys don't have, especially independent grocers or independent retailers of any sort. When they're wearing many hats, they don't have time. So exactly. Yeah. And I bet without the pandemic, you probably would have never pushed as hard and as fast into virtual, right? No. And exactly what you said is right on hard and fast because it was always in the works. Yeah. But the pandemic accelerated it by several years. Yeah. And then it's just everybody got so used to it that, I mean, we have buyers that are participating in 10, 15. One that I interviewed is participating in 22 sessions this year. Wow. If we were doing it in person, they'd get to do two or three. Yeah. So it ex- gives them this opportunity to meet all of these brands, get exposure to them, gives these brands more opportunity to get exposure to these buyers. Yeah. But again, all of this happened where, one, we had a chance of either losing our whole business because we yeah. couldn't adapt, or you know, instead, we just took a chance. We're like, let's just build a platform from scratch and make it happen. Fortunately, our process and our format lent itself to this. You know, It's sure. not like trying to turn an expo into what we do. We were basically, or we're doing the same thing we always did. It's just a different medium that it happens on. But again, if we were stuck in those limiting beliefs of, well, we always did in person and that's it. We just have to find out a way to do it in person during the pandemic. We wouldn't be alive right now. So it's uh, you you guys did a phenomenal job. And I think. You know, it, I'm sure it wasn't comfortable building the platform from scratch and, you know, everything that you went through to get to the success that you're seeing today. But there are breakthrough results just in terms of the number of meetings that you had. And I don't think that's limited just to industries that might have some online mm-hmm. potential. You know, one of my favorite case studies that I've done some work around is a restaurant in Seattle, Washington. Just a single, single restaurant, well known for like their customer service and the people and the chef and the smells, right? Like a community kind of place. And during the pandemic, you know, billions were lost overnight. You know, Mm -hmm. countless restaurants will never reopen. Mm -hmm. You know, they're applying for loans, they're closing their doors, they're laying people off. Not that any of those things were wrong, by the way. But what this restaurant Anno did is he leaned into it and he said, you know what? We're going to go through this discomfort. We're not going to let it stop mm-hmm. us. And through some really innovative thinking, they started their own delivery service. They started special menu items. They started shipping products direct to home. Like they've created fantastic experiences out of their restaurant. Mm-hmm. Even when restaurants were still closed, they were doing more sales than they were even when their doors open. Mm-hmm. It works for everything. You just yeah. have to go through it. Yeah, no, that's a, a good point. There's a, um, there's a leadership consultant. Actually, he's an author. His book comes out in July yeah. um, called On Mission, Your Journey to, to Authentic Leadership. Actually, I'm going to introduce you guys because I, I, would I love think it. You, would, uh, you guys would hit it off. He, he was in the military, uh-huh. um, goes back to uh, he was with our CEO in the Marines. And Greg, you know, Greg Farah, our CEO. So he was, mm-hmm. uh, they served together in the Marines. And, um, but this guy was also the chief counsel of a shoe retailer. Mm-hmm. And similar story during the pandemic. No, they, instead of uh, closing down and, and laying everybody off or furloughing people, 
they just turned their stores into fulfillment hubs and they just did, they doubled down on e-commerce and their staff ended up just becoming like pickers and packers and they were able to keep everybody working. And, you know, so um, there were so many people that did that, but then there was other people that either gave up or they didn't want to try something different or try something new or, uh, you know, and granted some people were put in a position where they just, the best thing for them to do was just close. Sure. But there were some that just gave up that, that uh, didn't want to try. Cause like you said, it's not comfortable. The time we went through when we were, when we were making a transition was not pretty. It was not fun, but you know what, when we came out the other side, not only did we end up, having this you know breakthrough platform and and succeeding even more than we did before but it also drew the team together i mean in a way where now we know ongoing like you said strengthen that muscle where we know ongoing that if something else happens we know we can do it we know we'll be able to handle it exactly i mean it gets built into the fabric of the culture of companies that really not just lean into it, but commit to going through it because it's it's easy to say like, oh, we'll just change your beliefs. And on one level, it is very easy, mm-hmm. right? Change your beliefs about what might be possible. But what that feels like can be something equivalent to maybe even death, right? Oh my God, I'm not going to make it. I can't do it. I'm not cut out for that. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough time. Like everything in your logical mind is going to tell you reasons why not. Mm-hmm. And it's moving through that that's actually going to shift your beliefs. Anything um, more superficial than that is just kind of a passing thought and it won't work. Yeah. Yep. And there's nothing wrong with changing your beliefs. Look, that book uh, no, from necessary. Adam Grant, uh, you, know, you know, Adam Grant, yep. um, you know, he talks about thinking like a scientist, right? How does a yeah. scientist think? They are all about proving themselves wrong. They're constantly trying in the scientific method to, okay, I have this theory and let me try and shoot it down. And if they shoot it down, they're happy because they made some, they got an answer in some direction and they could shift. So changing your beliefs is not a bad thing in that context if it keeps you moving forward. Exactly. Uh, it, It. I don't know if it ever feels good, at least for me. I, I think I'm a recovering perfectionist like many, right? Like you just, you want it to be done. You want it to be perfect. And then you want to move on to the next thing. And it's, it just doesn't work that way. It's a continual process of improvement as you get mm-hmm. uh, maybe failures in big ways like I have or smaller ways. It's just feedback to adjust your um, sense of the world, adjust your discomfort mm-hmm. to make you even more effective. Yeah. And it's the, that continuous improvement, uh, improvement. I know, yeah. uh, you know, I've been studying karate for a long time. I know you do yoga, uh, a lot of yoga. And the thing is, you know, what I, what I loved, like the, the founder of my system had a saying, where he said, you're never as perfect as you are the day you die. Right. Mm-hmm. In other words, you keep improving. And it's like, I can be working on something and working on it, working on it. And of course my instructor will always show, where, you know, and it's always, and what I love about it yeah. is you're constantly, there's always something you could do better, always something you could do better. And when you're exposed, I think in the right way, where yeah. it's in the context of always improving, not that you screwed up, uh, you, you know, you're t- but in the sense that, you know, when you understand 
that a mistake now is a learning for later, it kind of helps with that mindset of, all right, it's not that bad a thing that I did something wrong. <laughs> right. Yeah. You, you get better at it. And if you're not willing to be wrong, well, one, you're never going to be able to achieve something new. You've locked yourself into the results because you, you're not going to change your perspective at all. Mm -hmm. And two, you'll never learn anything new. You, you, you basically locked yourself into place, either as an individual, if you do it inside of a company, you've locked the company into place. And then, yeah, I hear a lot of people walking around talking about being stuck. It's not because of the market. Yeah. It's not because what's going on with the inflation or the economy or the war in Europe or anything else. It's because you've just been unwilling to maybe be wrong or said differently, give up some of the views, perspectives, mindsets, and beliefs that have been holding you back. Yep. If you're not making any mistakes, that means you're not trying. Right. You know, there's a company, I, I don't remember which one or if I read it or heard about it or watched it somewhere. There's some company that actually celebrates once a month the best mistakes of its staff to encourage that, to encourage them to try new things. Yeah. And then the biggest failures or the best failures, they actually present them and people get an award for the best one yeah so i don't know if it's the same one but tata the indian automotive company does something similar like every i think year. maybe it was your book maybe yeah, it, it could was be. Your, it was yours it was yours then yeah see yeah, i knew yeah. i read it somewhere yeah <laughs> <laughs> every year they they basically pay off the biggest failure though which i think <clears throat> from a, a cultural standpoint like it's calling people into that discomfort of failing which is the only way you're ever going to achieve success mm -hmm. yeah yep See, I told you I, I read it somewhere. Yeah. Um, well, it sounded super smart, Joe. So I was <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> it had to come from there. <laughs> so, so now we'll get into hunting discomfort, right? So we yeah. talked about how avoiding it holds us back. And, you know, one thing that really kind of kept being reinforced when I read that part of the book about going after discomfort yeah, was that whole notion of commitment and how important commitment is, yeah. right? To, to the tattoo part that you mentioned, but that's right. But the importance of commitment, because yeah, uh, especially when you're talking about the non-committal statements people make, and you hear this all the time when it comes to like diets and working out. It's like, okay, after even my business, birthday, yeah, after this, I'm I'm gonna try. I hate hearing that word. I'm gonna try to. It's like either you know what's that saying? You know, crap or get off the pot. Yeah. Well, commitment, it's so important. So talk a little bit about commitment in the context of hunting discomfort. Yeah. Well, I think when you get to that point where everything looks bleak and uh, you're sure you can't go through the discomfort and everything in your conscious mind is telling you you can't go forward, it's that commitment that calls you forward, that brings you through that discomfort. And without it, it's just simply too easy to turn back. Uh, you know, one of the things that I'm constantly blown away by and constantly come back to is how complex the world that we live in is. And, um, you know, I, I get up, I see the same four walls around me, I go to the gym, I'm doing pretty much the same things on a day to day basis. Maybe I'm talking to new people. Uh, today's a very special day because I get to talk to you, Joe. But for the most part, it looks very similar. But the thing is that when we're looking with our conscious mind, we're only viewing about uh, 0.0000045% 0. 
percent of what's there. I think I got the zeros right on that. <laughs> it's a lot of zeros before any yeah. numbers, right? There's an incredible amount of potential in the world and an incredible amount of potential in ourselves that we simply don't see. And when we go through that discomfort by, yeah, I would call it getting a tattoo, committing in a way where there's no going back, it calls you through that discomfort to achieve whatever it is you want to achieve. In short, realizing even greater potential. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's the challenge I th- that a lot of people face is crossing that line from the trying to the committing. But yeah. once they do, like an um, easy example or a simple example a lot of people can relate to is, let's say you want to embark on a regular workout routine. Yeah. Those first couple of weeks or that first month, it's a lot of work to get yourself motivated to actually do it and mm-hmm. then go through the, you know, but after a few weeks or a month or so, it's a habit and you just do it. It's like, okay, it's six o'clock. Yeah. I got to start now. So, and the beauty of it is the motivation is not necessary anymore because it's just become that commitment, that habit. Yeah. But Getting to that point is the challenge. And I think so many people, that's where the sticking point is, and they don't make it past that hump. Yeah. Well, it is uncomfortable to commit, right? Especially commit in a very serious way. Like if I ask you, hey, Joe, you're right. Yeah. Like, what are you going to do no matter what tomorrow? Mm -hmm. Like, you'd probably stop for a moment to think about that because you're really committing. And I think that is very important, whether we're talking about health, health issues or business issues. Like, what am I actually going to do? And when we're in this kind of nebulous world of I want, wish, hope, could, try, might, or can't, right? That, mm-hmm. that non-committal world, our brain is going to take the easiest path forward, which is, well, let's just keep it the same. I don't want to do anything new. Yeah. And it's this part of the brain called the uh, reticular activation uh, system. I think I have that right. It's the RAS. Yeah. And when you're not committing, it looks for all the reasons why you can't. But when you really commit to something, it retunes that RAS to look for ways that you can achieve what it is you want to achieve. It's the same tool, uh, like if you ever bought a new car and suddenly you see that car everywhere. Yeah, yeah. It's that, that's the RAS, yeah. mm-hmm. right? And when you, when you make that commitment, whether it's to a new car or something else, you start to look at the world through the lens of how can I versus here's all the reasons why I cannot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm just for the record, I've never owned a car. I've had my license. Since uh, you're 16, a New Yorker. It's a bad example for you. Uh, but I've never owned a car. But I do know exactly what you mean, uh, where you, all of a sudden you see this or you start hearing things because now your attention is more focused right. on that thing. Well, you go to a lot of conferences and you know there's a lot of noise. There's a lot of din. Um, it's the reason you can pick out your name. Mm-hmm. from yep. maybe across the conference space because you're tuned for it. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And, and um, so many times people self-sabotage, like they'll talk themselves out of yeah. something that again is good for them and will, you know, provide growth and whether it's personal or business, but yeah. it's hard, but they'll yep. talk themselves out of it. Why do they do that? Because it's easier. Yeah. Right. Like it's, we we live in a time where I can basically sit on the couch and be entertained by Netflix. I can work through Zoom and I can have food delivered to my doorstep. 
comfortable. Uh, we can do that essentially. I mean, you might be working in different ways and you might be committed to different things. Um, but when we're comfortable, it just becomes an automatic. And unless you're willing to develop yourself as the kind of person that goes after discomfort and wants to grow regardless of the circumstances, you can just get stuck. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's just like biological in nature. Yeah, we're hardwired. It seems to safer. Like it seems yeah. more comfortable just to keep things as they are because it's, um, you know, that saying, "Better the devil you know than the devil mm-hmm. you don't." Yep, that's it. It's the devil you know. Even if you don't like the results, even if those results are uncomfortable, you know it, so you're more likely to stick with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just evolution-wise, it was better to be comfortable. And to not expend energy and to stay safe in your cave, if you could, than to just be out all the time where you could have gotten eaten or something like that. Right. But by the same token, if you got hungry or something, you kind of had to. But we had discomforts thrown at us back then on a regular basis. So we got enough of that exercising that muscle. Yeah. Now we can literally sit on our couch and get everything delivered to us all the time and we never have to do anything so right and and it's caused that where we started right that miscalibration of discomfort feeling discomfort even though there's nothing that's actually threatening to you mm-hmm. yeah and you know some people don't 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 venture into uncomfortable things because of self-doubt but you mentioned right. in your book that a little bit of self-doubt is healthy can you talk about that yeah yeah i i think it is you know um Somebody that doesn't have any self-doubt, I think, can be damaging to themselves and others because it just becomes destructive, right? They're not intentionally reflecting on the impact they're making, who they are, um, how they're operating in the world. Healthy self-doubt is knowing that you have it, but not being victim to it, but articulating the limitations that you actually do have. Again, in physics, Mm -hmm. what limitations do I actually have in this moment? Because there may be real limitations to that. And that's the first step to overcoming them. That would make you actually prepare, like work harder to prepare too. If you have a little, like if you have no self-doubt, you may just try and wing something where if you have a little self-doubt, you'll prepare a little more kind of like you did with your speech. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, I think one of the reasons that first Singapore speech was so successful is because I obsessed about it for three or four months. And all I did was practice speaking, mm-hmm. right? If I had no self-doubt, maybe I would have gone, I would have given the talk, maybe it would have even been fine. But I don't know it would have been good enough to launch what has now become my speaking career. So there, there is a use for it. It's just not letting that self-doubt stop you. Yeah, it's like what they say when you when you feel afraid or when you feel fear, like even yeah. like the Navy SEALs, when they're getting ready to go on a mission, they right. feel fear. But basically, that's just telling them that they know what they're going to do is going to be difficult and it's gearing up their body to be, you know, to be prepared for it mentally, it, physically. And- exactly. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, what's comforting to me in that is that most everybody has at least some level of self-doubt. Mm-hmm. And pretending otherwise just makes it worse. I mean, that's where you see these people that just feel like it's all bravado and no substance. That's what that is. Yeah. Like self-doubt that they're trying to cover up. Um, but it's that self-doubt that we, well, I shouldn't say all, many of us have that becomes the path to building courage and confidence, right? It's going through that, not knowing if you can, 
and going through and proving to yourself that, hey, I can, or hey, I couldn't, and here's what I learned from it so I can the next time. Exactly. Exactly. It'll make you want to do the right thing to, let's say you're trying to build a business or help somebody, that self-doubt is going to put you in a position to prepare enough so that you can help them or, or help your business or you know, help yourself in a positive way. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it tells you what you really care about, mm-hmm. right? Like if I have a lot of self-doubt about publishing this book, for example, that's because I poured my heart and soul into it, mm-hmm. right? It matters to me. And if I looked at that self-doubt as something that's saying, hey, Sterling, you should pull back. You can't do that. Well, then I'm going to left, be left unfulfilled in the world. I'm going to be leaving all this potential, all these thoughts, not because there's not some good things in this book. I think there's a lot of them. Mm-hmm. But because I, I listened to the self-doubt, which isn't always true. It was just saying, hey, Sterling, this matters. Yeah. And, you know, spend the time required to um, get it to a place where you think you're ready to release it. Yep. Because you want to deliver value. You want to make exactly. sure it delivers value. Exactly. Yeah. So talk a little bit about why we should all be doing something hard every once in a while. I'll give us some examples of, of, of that. Yeah. Well, so one of my favorite stories about this is personal story. So, you know, we talked a little bit about the pandemic and the impact it had on our business. Um, You know, all the speaking and workshops that we had were canceled in the span of about a week. And it just flipped the entire business and me on its head. And I was left probably similar to you thinking like, what do we do? Yep. And I didn't First week in March, uh, we all, everything closed. Right. Like I, I will never forget sitting on my couch, looking at social media and seeing somebody post the article about the NBA canceling their season. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I didn't, I didn't even know the NBA could do that. Yeah. Right. And then it's like instantly the phone calls started and yeah. I probably, and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, For I, us, I, we knew when Expo West closed in uh, mm-hmm. March of 2020, that was like the sign to all of us. Yeah. Stuff was ha- changing. <laughs> yeah. And I, frankly, after a lot of damage control, I didn't know what to do. I mean, I sat on the couch and ate pizza for a, a few weeks and watched Netflix. And I think uh, what started to snap me out of it anyways, is a pizza place called me and it's like, are, are you okay? You've never ordered two pizzas a day for two weeks straight, you know? Uh, but I was like, wait a minute. It was an intervention, a pizza intervention. It was, it was a pizza intervention. And, and I was like, well, wait a minute. <clears throat> I've been through really challenging times before. Why is this one any different? It's not. I was just afraid initially to go through the discomfort. And, you know, Joy, as you point out, one of the best things you can do when you're in a situation like that is to do something really hard because it will shift your perspective about yourself and how you're viewing whatever the situation is. And I prefer physical things. So, you know, David Goggins, you're, you're probably a fan. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so like super athlete, Navy SEAL, runs like 300 miles on a whim. And he had this challenge. He was doing a 48 by 48 challenge, which means run 48 miles within 48 hours. And I, you know, I'm not a runner, but I was like, you know what? I take this challenge, David Goggins, let's go. And I I thought it was going to be difficult. I didn't appreciate like just how difficult it was going to be. Especially those runs at like 4 a.m. where I, you know, I didn't want to get up. I'm exhausted. My body hurts. But I got to the end of that thing, passed out, slept for probably 20 hours. And the next day I got up and I was like, wait a minute, I know what to do. 
And we started building a virtual studio and calling some connections and, you know, started leaving me in action. Not because like I was um, threatened by something new. It's not like the circumstances changed, but that something hard kind of snapped me out of the uh, comfort I was in, or maybe better said, avoiding the discomfort that I didn't want to face. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it works for, you know, it worked great for me. It works for anything. Yeah. You know, there's something about doing that. You pick a task, physical or mental, but like you yeah. said, physical is a very, physical very is good. Definitely my preference. Yeah. And that's a good way to do it. And then something that you don't think you can accomplish, but yeah. you're going to try anyway. And what most people will ultimately find is they can accomplish it. Maybe not as pretty as they expected or as you know clean as they expected. But once they do, then they realize, you know what? Where else in my, li- in my life have I not pushed myself enough? Yep. You know, and, and going back to like martial arts, right? Yeah. And, and the, the style of karate that I study. And I, I guess it's the same in a, <clears throat> a lot of schools. But when someone has their black belt test, it's a brutal several hour test where yeah. you're doing so many different things. And by the end, you're utterly exhausted. You've never done that much work the whole, all the years leading up to it. But what that does is after that, you realize, you know what? I haven't been training to my fullest potential. You know, like I can train so much harder than I have been because I just did and I made it through it okay. Yeah. You know, because they always say the, the black belt level is just you're starting. That means you have all the tools to actually start learning. Right. And it's more of an, you know, you're going to get it usually on that day, but that's the initiation. And after that, you know, your training kicks up several notches. You're more disciplined in your training. And it just, you know, like you said, with the run right after you accomplish that, it opens up a whole bunch of things where you realize there's so many areas of my life where I could put more into it that I haven't been. And you can apply that to whatever it is, physical, non-physical, spiritual, you name it. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll, I'll give you another example. I mean, we'll get into the no matter what community, but for now, y- you know, we've got a group of people that does some of these crazy activities with me. And um, I will never forget my first summer here in Colorado. I signed up for what's called the triple bypass, which is um, 107 miles through three mountain passes and about 10,000 feet of elevation gain. And, you know, I hired a trainer and I think there were five or six people from the community that uh, we're going to do it. But one of them from California, her name's Sarah, she didn't even own a bike. And she stepped up and she said, hey, you know what? I've been in my job for about a decade. Uh, I feel like I've stalled out. I don't know where to go. Like, I'm just unclear on my next step. I feel stuck. I'm going to do it. Mm -hmm. And I give her a a tremendous amount of credit because uh, eventually she bought a bike. She did the training. she committed. She, uh, she got her tattoo. She committed, right? She committed in a way where there was no going back. And uh, she did everything that was required. And she finished that race at the same pace that I did. And it, it was an, an incredible accomplishment for her. Her family's super proud of her. Um, but maybe even more importantly, is within a couple of months of her finishing that race, she moved states. She got a a new job, like a dream job that she had always wanted, and she's getting paid more than she has ever. And it's Mm -hmm. like, well, wait a minute, that that works for us on an individual level. And, you know, she's just living proof of it. 
That's awesome. That's awesome. And it's, it's just so a, cool. It's a great example. I'm so happy for it too. Yeah. No, that's, you know, and, and speaking of, you know, that group, the no matter what group, you know, talk about the street gang that you mentioned in your book and then the no matter what community, because I think they're interrelated because one they is are. kind of a street gang for, uh, for the, for yeah. the members. Well, a street gang is a group of people that can uh, maybe most importantly hold you accountable. Mm -hmm. And there's really four main roles that I think is important in that world of accountability. You know, direct accountability is one, but we also need to be surrounded by maybe even accountable to being inspired on a regular basis. We need some mentorship or direction in where we want to go as an individual or as a company. And maybe most importantly, or fundamental to the whole thing is we need to be loved. And without those four things, it's very hard, maybe even impossible to make progress. And, you know, it, when I was first doing some of this research and I started keynote speaking as my sister, um, she was right out of college when I was getting into it and I recruited her or maybe guilt tripped her into um, helping me. I was like, let me give you this presentation, help me with the slides. Like she, I could not have done this thing without her. And she could probably still give you that presentation back verbatim. She listened to it so many times. <laughs> um, but she started taking some of that stuff to heart. And she's like, well, wait a minute. What am, what am I going to do? What discomfort am I going to hunt? And she had been dealing with some health issues and some body issues. And she said, you know what? I'm going to become a bodybuilder. WBFF, if that means anything to you or any of the, the listeners out there, it's a, a bodybuilding organization. Mm -hmm. And she committed, she signed up, she got a coach, she started weighing all of her food and she started lifting weights. And uh, she did go on to become a professional level bodybuilder, which is still crazy for me to yeah. think about that. You know, my, my, 10, Hey, that's one hell of a commitment she made. Yeah. 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 You know, I, I have to now live with the fact that she can beat me up, but you know, I'll live with that. <laughs> so I shared with we'll her. Protect then, we'll yeah, protect exactly, you. protect you. Exactly. Exactly. She, she doubles as my bodyguard yeah. on the road. Um, but she started sharing it with other people and other people started, you know, hunting discomfort and very organically, it became a, a group of people that were um, not just committed to big things and big goals, whether in their professional life or in their uh, health life or in their relationships or in any area but willing to support each other to move through the discomfort to actually achieve them, to give up those beliefs, those views, how they see themselves, each other, or the world in pursuit of that goal. And that really was the foundation of the no matter what community. And today, you know, we've got um, a group on Facebook, we send out newsletters every week, and it, it to this day is still true to what it originally was, a group of people that can support you to achieve whatever it is that you're committed to. And I think that's so important. And, you know, kudos to you for to starting that because, you know, whenever you're, you got to give it to my sister, I think it's not me. Well, both, both <laughs> of you guys. So, but you know, when you're embarking on something like that, you'll have, yeah. you know, not everybody supports it. You know, you'll have right. some people that'll be like, you know, cause they're not doing it. So they will like talk down to you about it or whatever. Yeah. But if you have a group of people that are of a similar mindset that are going to hold each other accountable, it makes all the difference. You know, I kind of informally had yeah. one with just, you know, I was uh, started my health journey a few years ago. A couple of friends I grew up with started theirs. Yeah. Some coworkers. 
you know, then I started getting the rucking stuff. A couple of my friends got another friend. And then it's like, okay, I just did this many miles with this many pounds. Yeah. And we're kind of trading notes and compare, you know, and, and, you know, egging each other on and stuff. And it makes a difference. It makes you want to keep doing it or want to make you do it harder. Want to make you really commit because now you do, you, you feel accountable, even if it's yeah. not a formal thing, but you still feel that accountability and, and you don't want to let them down by letting yourself down. Exactly. Well, and your first point's an important one. Actually, one of the signs that you're growing is that other people might be upset about it mm-hmm. or they, they criticize you, or put it down or, or yeah. don't like the direction you're going. And Oh, you're always working out or oh, you're, yeah. you're strict on your diet, have some fun or whatever, you know. Right. And, and that's actually a sign <clears throat> that you're doing it right, that you're on the right path. Um, so I, I think that's... Uh, you know, kind of a uh, flag saying you're going in the right direction or anything else. But from the accountability standpoint, I hear a lot of people, especially in the the business world and within business, especially the grocery world, I'm like, oh, I'm going to be self-accountable for this. And that might be fine. Yeah, I think self-accountability is something that can uh, support you to basically maintain the level that you're at but it will not work for growth unless you've got a group that can support you um, outside. It just is too easy to you know fall back on the status quo uh, when things get really tough. So that's that's exactly what the group's about, right? So I I encourage anybody, everybody to you know share in that community what they're up to. Ask for some specific accountability if they're looking for it, and there's always somebody there that'll do it because you know they've had it done for them. Excellent. So again, where can they find the no matter what community? If you go to sterlinghawkins.com, all the information about how to join is there. It's, it's not like a sales thing. Uh, it doesn't cost anything. You can drop in your email and we'll get you the information. Awesome. So again, thank you so much. Congratulations again on your book. It's coming thank out you. next month. It'll be on Amazon or you know, bookstores. Everywhere great books are sold is what I say. Exactly. So uh, really enjoyed the conversation and I look forward to, you know, we'll, we'll make this a regular thing and I'm going to participate more in your no matter what group. Let's go, Joe. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Thanks again. Thank you.